In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a maid by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and petition in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with all those, with all who love him and obey his commands. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The men of Judah and people of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far and in all countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. <clears throat> o Lord, we and our kings, our princes, and our fathers are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the word spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing upon us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all the disaster that has come upon us, Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned. We have done wrong. O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O oh my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. These are the words of our Lord. May they produce repentant faith in everyone who hears them.
the back half of the book of Daniel is filled with apocalyptic visions and dreams. Yet here in chapter 9, those string of visions are broken up by this moving prayer of Daniel's. It is very fitting indeed because it, it delivers to the reader not only instruction on how to pray, but it demonstrates Daniel's heart as well. It is a humble petition of a man seeking the will of God. It is a prayer of adoration, confession, and supplication. It is an appeal to the promises of God. It's something that we as Christians don't do enough, whether it's doubt on our part or, it, or just ignorance. Too often we neglect what is written down for us in God's word. Daniel, however, does not forget God's promises, and he petitions God to fulfill his word. Another thing to note about this prayer is that it is well thought out and orderly. When one breaks down, this, breaks down the text, the structure of the prayer becomes obvious. In the first three verses, we see that Daniel's study of God's word was what led him to pray. And in verses 4 through 10, Daniel begins praising God and confessing the sins of his people. In verses 11 through 14, Daniel reminds the Lord that punishment according to the law had been dealt. And in verses 15 through 19, Daniel makes an appeal based on God's glory for the restoration of the Jews to the promised land. Imagine if you were given an audience with the President of the United States and you knew that he would earnestly listen to your concerns about your country. How would you go about preparing for such an occasion? Would you put it off, not thinking about it until the time arrived and hoping that something would come to your mind at that very moment to say? Of course not. If you're like most people, you would prepare in advance. You might take notes on what it is that you want to propose to the president. You may even write down word for word exactly what you want to say. You would even practice it beforehand, making sure that you are confident. You'd make sure that your message is both clear and persuasive. In many Christian circles today, there's this idea that prayer is something that should be spur of the moment, that you'll stifle the Holy Spirit if you're preparing too much. Yet that's not what we see in Scripture, is it? Instead, every prayer seems to be well thought out, organized, structured. The people in the Bible, they understood that they were coming before the King of Kings, and they did not treat prayer lightly. From the prayers of David in the Psalms to Mary's Magnificat, from the Lord's Prayer to his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, all those prayers were well-planned and organized. The same is true of Daniel's prayer. This man of God provides for us an amazing example of how to pray. Pray in a manner that is honoring to God, that seeks his will, 
all the while expressing the concerns that Daniel had for his people. So let's dive into the text. Verse 1. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Our setting is the year 539 B.C. And Darius the Mede had recently captured Babylon ending the reign and the life of King Belshazzar. If we were to place it chronologically within the first six chapters of Daniel, it would most likely fit right before Daniel 6, when Daniel had been thrown into the lion's den for praying. By this time, Daniel would have already been captive in Babylon for roughly 66 years. In verse 2, we see that Daniel had been searching the scriptures in order to hear from God concerning the exile of his people. A Jewish return to the homeland seemed improbable. Yet despite his circumstances, Daniel comes across this passage in Jeremiah 25, verses 11 and 12. It reads, this whole country will become des a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord, and will make it desolate forever. Daniel came upon this promise of 70 years and had interpreted it as being fulfilled through Darius the Mede. And it led him to pray for his own people. Could the time of punishment really be over? Was it possible that his people would once again return to the promised land? What Daniel demonstrates for us here is the interaction between God and man. It is God who speaks to us through his word. And in turn, when we study God's word, we are led into prayer, our communication back to God. This is the natural ebb and flow of a believer's relationship with the Lord. We have the word to listen to God's voice, followed by prayer, our expression back to God. There are no complicated rituals to perform in order for God to hear you. There's no level of piety that needs to be reached before God will turn his ears your way. And there's no priest that you need to seek, for Christ is already our mediator. It is a simple back and forth, God's word and prayer. That being said, Daniel still takes prayer very seriously, pleading with God as he fasted in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, Daniel is taking a position of humiliation and repentance and sorrow. He had humbled himself, showing respect for the king that he was approaching. 
Daniel knew that he was only a beggar seeking mercy from his Lord. But more than this, the fasting, the sackcloth, and the ashes, they suggest that he was grieving over the distress of his people, and he was repenting for their sins. It is in this posture of humbleness and repentance and sorrow that Daniel begins his prayer in verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. This is the first of three praises and confessions of Daniel's. Three times he contrasts God's goodness with the wickedness of Israel. The pattern is very rhythmic. Praise for God, confession for sin. Daniel begins by demonstrating God's faithfulness to his covenant of love. What he, what he is referring to here is the agreement made between the people of Israel and God at Mount Sinai. It was a conditional covenant similar to the vassal treaties that were made between strong kings and weaker ones. If the people would obey God's command, then he would pour out his blessings upon them. If they would not, then he would bring about his curses. And Daniel praises God because he is faithful to this covenant. God is not a liar. He holds true to his promises. This is in contrast with the Israelites who were unfaithful to God's law. They had turned away from God's decrees and refused to listen to the prophets. Now these prophets, they acted as prosecuting attorneys in God's courtroom. And Daniel takes particular note that these prophets were sent to all walks of life, to kings, to princes, to fathers, and to all the people of the land. No one could escape the blame. All were guilty. This takes us to Daniel's second confession in verse 7. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The men of Judah and people of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. O Lord, we and our kings, our princes, and our fathers are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. Here we see that God's righteousness is contrasted with the disgrace of Israel. They are covered with shame because of their sins. Daniel hearkens us back to the garden when in shame Adam and Eve hid their nakedness from God for they had disobeyed his command. Likewise, Judah's sin is laid bare for all to see. The fact that they have been scattered demonstrates, demonstrates to the world their own nakedness, and it is to their embarrassment. Shame 
is a topic that we shy away from all too often, especially in the West. We, as a people, are so afraid of emotional scars that we avoid shame altogether. And this is to our detriment. For shame is the emotional aspect of the law, intended to curb sin. There is a proper use of shame that the majority of the world understands, yet we hide from it. When I was in Thailand, I noticed that shame was a predominant way that they restrained bad behavior. Case in point, we had an incident with a young boy that kept playing ding-dong ditch. Do you know what ding-dong ditch is, don't you? Ding-dong, I'm running away. Um, yeah. Well, I finally talked to the Puban, the, the neighborhood, the elder in the neighborhood, and the culprit was discovered. And in order to prevent further occurrences, a police officer brought the young boy to our house and took a picture of him pushing our doorbell button. That picture was then displayed for the community to see, placing shame upon the boy. Needless to say, the prank doorbell rings stopped. Shame is God's way of humbling mankind. It is the anti-venom to the poison of pride. Yet shame isn't God's only tool. Look at verse 9. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving. Even though we have rebelled against him, we have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. Here we see God's great mercy and forgiveness. Even though Israel refused to obey God's commands, God did not wipe them off the face of the earth. In our first scripture reading, we read how God had communicated his mercy to Israel through his covenant. He knew that they would break his commands, yet he also foresaw their repentance. Look at Leviticus 26 again, verses 40 through 45. But if they will confess their sins and the sins of their fathers, their treachery against me and their hostility toward me, which made me hostile toward them, so that I sent them into the land of their enemies, then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. For the land will be deserted by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They will pay for their sins because they rejected my laws and abhorred my decrees. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am the Lord. God knew long before that his people would betray him. Yet he had determined in advance to show patience and forgiveness to his people. Even though Israel would turn their backs on God, he would not curse them forever. 
His desire is restoration, not destruction. So three times we see Daniel praise God and then confess sin. And notice that he doesn't set himself apart from his people. He includes himself in the rebellion. Remember, this is the one who refused to eat the king's food and drink the king's wine because he thought the food and the wine would defile him. He's the man who earnestly sought Yahweh for the vision and interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He's the one that showed compassion towards the very man that had leveled Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and slaughtered many of his friends and family. Daniel doesn't seem like an idolater. He doesn't seem like one who should be filled with shame. Yet he sees himself in these confessions. We have been wicked and rebelled. We are covered in shame. We have not obeyed the Lord our God. What is going on here? Why is Daniel including himself in these confessions? He is acting as a mediator for his people. Yes, Daniel has sin of his own, but I don't think he could be accused of worshiping at the Asherah poles or bowing down to Baal. He had been faithful to Yahweh. But Daniel understands that he is not his own. He is of the people of God, and as such, he shares in their wickedness. The sin of his brother is his sin. He is his brother's keeper. Dear friends, do you take this same perspective with your people? Do you share in the guilt of that abortion doctor who took the lives of three babies last week? Do you feel the shame of that spouse who has been sleeping around? Do you express remorse for that man who had defrauded thousands of people? While you may not be specifically guilty of any of those things, you're part of a society that has allowed such things to take place. Corporate sin is sin nonetheless. Daniel was born into a culture not much different from ours. Maybe worse. We don't know. He knew that the Babylonian captivity was God's judgment upon them. Do you see our declining culture as God's judgment upon us? As Daniel did, we must pray for the hearts of our people. We must take up the sins of our neighbors and pray for repentance. There is one who is greater than Daniel who took upon himself the sins of his people. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Verse 11. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us. 
because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing upon us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. God is faithful to his covenant, even the curses. Daniel points out that nothing has ever been done that what had been done to Jerusalem. The Babylonians, they could be cruel, but Nebuchadnezzar was particularly harsh when it came to the city of David. He laid siege on the city, leveling the walls and demolishing the house of the Lord. The Babylonians, typically, they left temples alone. They did not touch them. Yet God had a message to communicate to his people. He had abandoned his temple. For they had ignored God's word long enough and gave their hearts over to sin. Judgment was upon them. Again, Daniel understands that it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar that caused this desolation. Rather, it was their own sinful hearts. He reminds, he reminds God in this prayer that this punishment was severe and that justice had been dealt. So he directs his prayer towards a plea for mercy. Mercy on account of God's own glory. Verse 15. Now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Daniel brings up this plea for mercy with a reminder of past mercies. God had delivered his people out of slavery from Egypt. And now this banishment in Babylon was a new form of bondage that had shackled the people of God. A return from this exile would be like a second exodus, another demonstration of God's power and glory. As it was, the Jews, they were scorned by the nations. Yet they had repented of their ways and had turned once again to Yahweh. The Lord's discipline was effective. The hearts of the people had been softened. Verse 17. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. 
We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Daniel points out three things here. First, the sanctuary is desolate. How can God be great if his sanctuary is abandoned? Second, how can the city that bears God's name bring glory to him if it is empty? And finally, how can God's name be glorified if the people who bear his name are in exile? Daniel appeals to God's glory for the rescue of his people. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. If God is glorified through his justice, how much more will he be glorified through his grace and his forgiveness? Truth be told, the people of Judah did not deserve to return to the land. Their hearts were still sinful. Their repentance was not pure enough. Even Daniel, as good of a man as he was, he was not worthy of God's grace. Yet God showed mercy anyways. Within a year of this prayer, Cyrus the Great would grant all the exiles of Babylon freedom to return to their homelands. This king even helped to fund the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem. God had heard Daniel's petitions and relented. He showed mercy to Daniel and his people. We experience the same mercy. Romans chapter 8, verses 34. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Brothers, sisters, you are no different than the Israelites that had broken their covenant with Yahweh. You have sinned and turned your back on your master, following your own path. Yet you have one who is greater than Daniel, interceding for you. Christ took upon himself your sins when he went to the cross. The shame that you bear was placed upon him as he hung naked for all to see. He was cast outside the city walls in exile for your unfaithfulness. The full cup of God's wrath was poured out upon him. More than that, he was raised to life and now sits at the right hand of the Father praying for you. He desires nothing more than to bring you back to the promised land. And he offers entrance into his kingdom for all who trust in him. Dear friends, God's greatest glory is seen in his mercy. He will not delay for the people who bear his name. And if Christ is interceding for you, 
Does it not follow that you should be interceding for the people around you? O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. Let us pray. Father, you who are faithful to your covenant of love, you who are righteous, who are full, who is full of mercy and grace and forgiveness, we confess that we have sinned against you and turned to our own ways. We have ignored your word and followed our own desires. We are covered in shame. We ask that you would show us mercy and grace, not because of any righteousness of our own, but because your name is great. By the working of your Holy Spirit, turn our hearts and the hearts of our people towards you, towards your Son, Jesus. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.